Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in banter, Chief TV critic Dan Feinberg. What's up, Dan? There's so much TV, Leslie. It's a little bit exhausting. And we will definitely get into that later this podcast. But <laughs> as, as opposed to the weeks where we really just don't discuss how much TV there is at all. We're like, oh, just once again, just nothing happening. But it's in, in particularly June is a huge month for TV premieres. And that will be one of our segments this week. Spoiler Jeez. alert. But in the larger sense, Memorial Day is in the books. The summer news cycle has finally slowed down. And here's what's new this week. The Game of Thrones showrunners have fired their longtime managers as they shop for a new overall deal. The Writers Guild and agencies are set to resume negotiations next week in their ongoing battle over packaging fees and affiliated studios. And actor Jason Mitchell has been fired from his role as the lead on Showtime's The Shy, following misconduct allegations that also saw him fired from a Netflix film and stripped of his MTV Movie and TV Award nomination. Plus, the Television Critics Association, an organization that I happen to be presidential in. Yeah, that one. We have a host, or rather multiple hosts, for our 35th annual awards ceremony. Uh, Jesus and Mero of Showtime's Jesus and Mero are going to be our hosts. If you aren't watching Jesus and Mero, and I'm not just saying this because they're going to come host our award show, it's a really, really funny late night show. It started off only one night a week. It is now two nights a week. I would like to urge Showtime to not make it more because, frankly, I don't have more time than that. But it's a really good show. You should check it out. And speaking of self-promotion... <laughs> <laughs> how, how much am I promoting myself when I mention that, yes, indeed, I am the TCA president? What am I getting out of that, Leslie? It doesn't make me more powerful. No, you're just giving me a punchline, that's all. Excellent. Then in that case, happy to do so. In that case, speaking of self-promotion... Speaking of self-promotion, <laughs> plans for TV's Top 5 Live at the ATX TV Festival are in high gear. Dan and I are working really hard to make it a fun and informative event. So if you're in Austin at the Great ATX Festival, bring your TV questions to our live show on Thursday, June 6th at 4 p.m. at the SFA Ballroom. And if you can't make it, feel free to drop us a question for our live mailbag segment at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. But seriously, if you're going to be in Austin, we would really love to see you at 4 o'clock in the SFA Ballroom because hopefully it'll be fun. And if you've got questions, it could be even more fun. We might have some answers by that. I think that's what you mean, right? Ah, uh, whatever. Yeah. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. 
Leading off this week, Adam Levine has announced that he'd be leaving NBC's The Voice after a 16-season run. The Maroon 5 frontman, who unimpressed Madison Avenue ad buyers during The Voice coach's big performance earlier this month, had been with the singing competition since it launched in 2011. Only Levine and Blake Shelton have been with the series since its start. Levine will be replaced by Gwen Stefani, who joins Shelton, John Legend, and Kelly Clarkson when season 17 returns in the fall on NBC. Here to talk about the inner workings of Adam Levine's big departure, we welcome back to the podcast THR senior reporter Michael O'Connell. Who is our most frequent guest. Welcome, Mikey. Thanks so much. It's an honor to appear so frequently. Excellent. Well, if you have not been to THR.com today slash yesterday, Mikey wrote a terrific story getting to some of the root causes of what exactly went down with Adam Levine's departure. What would you say those root causes happened to be, Mikey? Well, the only people who probably really know the root causes are Adam Levine and maybe his therapist, but he has been on the show for 16 seasons, almost a full decade. He'd signed on for two more, and I think he just really came to regret that decision. And then what we saw was his departure sort of played out simultaneously in in public and sort of behind the scenes. The Voice is an interesting show because there are three studios involved and a network. I'm under the impression that a lot of people were finding out about him leaving at the same time that it was announced on the Today Show by voice host Carson Daly. Well, now, it's also, it's three studios. It's also four ridiculously high ego coaches, mentors, whatever you want to call those people on that show. Should we be surprised that this is the kind of thing that hasn't happened previously that there hasn't been this sort of big kind of public falling out or do, would you not even describe this as a falling out I wouldn't describe it as a falling out I think he left on as good of terms as possible I mean he was one of the two original panelists on that show it was Adam Levine and Blake Shelton were still on Blake Shelton of course still still on but when the show started it was Christina Aguilera and CeeLo Green and Christina Aguilera left and then she came back and then she left and came back and it seemed to be more of a natural ebb and flow of talent on this show it's not been the same panel every season there's been a lot of room for fluidity but the fact that these two guys have been the constant is unique and I I think losing one of them probably alters the dynamic of the show a bit but this is not a show that is new to like talent turnover and in a larger sense he was making 14 million per season yeah he was making i believe over just over 14 million a season at this point and this show bangs out like two seasons a year it is a really rigorous schedule it's it's not an easy commitment to make when you look at the sort of like reality television ecosystem. It's a lot of hours. It's a full-time job, but he was well compensated. He was making like $30 million a year. Now that NBC Upfront's performance got a lot of discussion, maligning, etc. And it, it was truly, for at least from the outside, it was utterly embarrassing. And it kind of caused chagrin for those of us who watched it. Is there any causality between that and the departure, or is it just a thing that happened proximate? I don't believe there is any causality between his sort of lackluster performance and his departure. I suppose you could read into it and say there is some causality 
in the network sort of so easily allowing him out of a a two-year contract. But I mean, I was in that room. He looked like a bit of a petulant child, but I would say a third of the talent that these networks trot out on stage is in like contained tantrum mode and yeah i mean the jonas brothers right performed at the cw up front and they're and they even started out by saying like this is where we want to be at 10 a.m on a thursday morning everyone makes fun of it no one wants to be in these rooms except like interns for media buying companies i guess but i mean i i spoke with people involved in the immediate aftermath and it no one was angry i think people were just sort of rolling their eyes it was it was what it was but it wasn't a shocker <laughs> i think it probably is it probably plays differently in the room because if kelly clarkson is singing and she's actually involving you can concentrate on her whereas when we watched it on the stream there's a certain amount of directing curating so if if the director cuts to a close up of adam levine glowering basically that's the thing we're noticing of course. whereas <laughs> and i mean you also have to keep in mind that like this is a a foursome of of front men and front women so when one person is taking the center stage it's not in their sort of wheelhouse to know how to be like the backup player like adam levine is not the bassist for Maroon 5. Who he, is the bassist for Maroon 5? No oh, idea. Okay. I wasn't sure. Was Maroon 5? I was going to say, name Maroons 4, 3, 2, and 1. We can't do it. No idea. I think you just did, Dan. Oh, I guess maybe probably Adam Levine is Maroon 1. The other ones are... How many people are in Maroon 5? I, you would assume 5. I don't know. I wouldn't I've assume never, I've never been a, much of an enthusiast. And yet they were at the Super Bowl and everything. Oh, what a riveting show that was. It was not very good. They should have booted him off the Super Bowl about halfway Moms through that. Moms loved it. <laughs> I don't even think my mom loved it. Oh, my God. I feel like Adam Levine is a lot of mom's gateway drugs towards tattoos. Like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> sure. Now, I want to talk... Not on my child. <laughs> But maybe on that guy. I want to talk a little bit about an article you wrote also earlier this week about the amount of money that people are making to host these game shows. Just because the amount of money that's going on here is remarkable. And $14 million for Adam Levine is one thing. But talk a bit about how much those ABC people are making. Oh, if you are A-list talent and you want to devote like three days a week for a month to hosting a 1970s game show revival, you can make a ton of money. Some of these people are making over $500,000 an episode. Most of them are making like 350, 400. But I I mean Tiffany Haddish, Ellen DeGeneres, Alec Baldwin, I mean obviously not all of these are ABC shows. They like NBC has a ton of high profile talent hosting easier to produce reality competitions. The Rock, I mean there's a Melissa reason McCarthy, yeah. that people of this caliber are hosting schlocky alternative shows on the big four. It's because it is, it's easier than doing a like ad endorsement that's only going to run in Tokyo. Like it's a lot of money. And that's a lot of what like a per episode fee is for some like high, high end level on the scripted side too. I mean, I mean, big bang guys were making like a million per episode, but 
that's more like 450,000 is more than I think Spader makes for an episode of The Blacklist. Oh, yeah. Enjoy blocking for like eight days straight, Viola A. Davis. Like you should really be hosting like no whammies or whatever the hell it is. Oh, God. Viola Davis hosting an ABC retro game show really would be. That's an SNL skit. It would be remarkable. Yeah. Whenever I see the ads for those things and Joel McHale pops up, I'm like, wow. Couldn't Joel you? McHale is not making four hundred thousand dollars an episode. Okay, I, I'm I'm very sure. So he's making less, you figure? Yes, because he's not Alec Baldwin, which I do he's understand. He's not Melissa McCarthy. He's not Melissa McCarthy. He's not a lot of people. <laughs> but it is still your article was very informative for me in the why would anyone be doing that? Oh right, because on one hand I see those people and I go, oh, he must have really loved watching that show when he was a kid. But that doesn't pay the bills. And then you read an article like yours, which has actual numbers, and you go, oh okay, I yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's been a big week for me and money. Not for my own, but other people's. Speaking of that, ABC renewed American Idol for another season, but they don't haven't locked in any of their judges yet. And Katy Perry was making a crazy amount to do a season of Idol. Wasn't she making like twenty five million? She was making pretty much what Adam Levine makes in a year for doing The Voice, but for considerably less work. Although American Idol, you got to do the whole touring thing. You had to go out on the road with them. Like that's kind of a pain in the butt too. I mean. American Idol, we're going to hit a point where the overhead is just not worth it. Disney has made a huge investment in this property. I don't think that at this point they can justify some of these salaries considering the type of audience the show pulls. Because you could pull that audience or a reasonable fraction of it with like slightly lesser caliber talent. Or not caliber, but just sort of marquee level. I don't know. It's... It'll be interesting to see if that entire panel comes back. Everyone's been really pleased with the creative on that show internally, but American Idol is a property that's always been fraught with behind-the-scenes politicking, and I'm anxious to see what happens in that I don't know what is going to happen, and I also don't super care. I'm not anxious, but it'll be interesting to see it play out. Let's say that. I feel like Ryan Seacrest would be an easier way to save money first over Katy Perry, because at this point, Ryan Seacrest does nothing for my enjoyment of that television show, and my enjoyment of that television show is governed, I would say, about 75% on Katy Perry. So they really do not want to get rid of her if they wish to keep me watching, because I am a very important viewer. Okay, apparently. (laughs) You're the the only one that I know, so (laughs) you're doing God's work. Well, Mikey, thank you so much for joining us this week. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Mikey. Number two. Batting second this week, let's talk about some of these canceled shows that are suddenly finding new life, or at least buzz about new life. This week, Lee Daniels wrote on Instagram that he's attempting to find a new home for a potential fourth season of Fox's canceled Empire spinoff, Star. That becomes the latest broadcast show to have a hint of life left in it after ABC last week kicked the tires on its one-and-done drama, Whiskey Cavalier, but ultimately decided to keep it canceled again. So canceled twice in the span of a week? I would say we probably don't say it was canceled the second time, though if you are a regular listener to this fine podcast, you heard ABC Entertainment President Carrie Burke last week on this very air 
and we asked her about Whiskey Cavalier, and she said very point blank that they had had reason to reconsider, but that they wanted to make the decision quickly. And I think the podcast was up for probably about six or seven hours before ABC announced that whatever reconsideration they were doing had been reconsidered. And the initial consideration was the standing consideration, reconsideration be damned. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it's a tough call, you know, and Carrie said that that cancellation was the one that was the hardest for her to make. It was also the last decision on all the bubble shows that ABC had left to do. And look, it was we've, we've talked about it before, but Whiskey Cavalier is produced by Warner Brothers, meaning ABC has to pay a licensing fee. It's shot internationally. It's got a big name cast with Scott Foley and Lauren Cohan. Lauren was one of the, the most sought after actresses last season. And I mean, it's not a cheap show. And if you watch it, it you can see the, the money on the screen. It looks great. And, you know, it, it just I can't imagine what kind of financing that I mean, ABC would have had to come in as a co-producer on it. And Warner Brothers would have had to give up a slice of the ownership. And probably what I would guess, and this is just, again, a, an educated guess, is ABC would probably looked at the financials and said, wow, this show costs a lot more than that 0.7 in the demo really is worth and the finale ticked up because it had that great the live comedy lead-ins ahead of it so i don't know it, it, it's a big question i think creatively it's a it's a good show i think the stars in it work i think it's a fun premise but it, it it's not going to air again on abc and it's gotten to the point now where sort of the great thing about hell week is that 25 shows are being canceled at once, so maybe there isn't the same spotlight on each and every one. But NBC finally last week got around to canceling AP Bio, and immediately all of the stars of that one began attempting to launch a Twitter campaign for it. And I can't imagine that happening. And AP Bio is, I think, a show that really had some potential. I think it was not a, a total lost cause as a series. I, it was a show that I thought had a great cast, that had a good sensibility, etc. But you had things like Patton Oswalt and the other stars of the show urging people to binge the first season on Hulu as if NBC were unaware of the numbers for Hulu viewing, and that was not a part of what went into the decision to cancel the show. It's not like Hulu is something that's invisible. They know what those numbers are, and yet we've reached the point now where nothing can simply be canceled without the hope of resurrection, even though resurrection is not the most common of things. Right. And Resurrection was a show that also was canceled. And I think they tried to shop it briefly and that didn't also go. But that, that was, was the Omar Epps ABC drama? Way back when. Yeah. Wow. That was and it was that was a show that actually premiered really big. And then its audience just fell off. Man, we let's we're going to do a whole segment on remembering that Resurrection was a show that existed. Let's not. But say we did. But yeah, to your point, there are, you know, look, every year I end the upfront season by doing uh, interviews with all of the studio chiefs. And one of the questions that we ask every season is the show that you plan to shop or the pilots you plan to shop. And pretty much all of the studio chiefs had pilots that they were planning on on shopping to other outlets. 20th Century Fox execs even said that they were hopeful to find a new home for Speechless, which has really been underreported as, you know, it's been the season's biggest cancellation. I think the most surprising of all of them, especially considering the ownership structure of it, which we've talked about on previous podcasts. But look, it's it's like an annual thing that happens every every May and June where there's a hustle to try and find new homes for these pilots. And I mean, last year was a really was a was a big year. I mean, Brooklyn Nine Nine jumped networks within the span of I think it was two days or less than forty eight hours. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. But that was something that was done very quickly because NBC's 
studio counterpart, Universal Television, owned the show. A year after ABC canceled the Tim Allen comedy, Last Man Standing, Fox picked it up because at the time Fox owned it. And now Fox, the network, doesn't own it now that the Fox's studio counterpart is now owned by Disney. So it's like, you know, a year, you know, two years later, it's completely changed. It's the same. Now it's back to the square one where Fox has a show that they, that's expensive that they no longer own. So even though it's coming back, it's that's still a conversation. Last season, two, Netflix picked up Designated Survivor, but Netflix already had SVOD rights and knew that that was a big international performer for it. And, you know, or at least according to all of its data. And then now we, when Netflix brought back Designated Survivor, did they make any changes to the show like on a on a creative level, Leslie? I feel like they might have. Dan, you're setting me up and I'm going to take the bait. Yes, they renewed it. It's coming back for season three in June on its second platform with its fifth showrunner. So three seasons, two platforms, five showrunners. No problem at all there. <laughs> hey, Kiefer Sutherland is a good basis for a TV show. Then you just need to figure out what to do with him. There were multiple incarnations, you might recall, of the glorious Fox show Touch starring Kiefer Sutherland, which was one that had at least, did it have three showrunners or only two? I think it might have been two, but it, it did undergo some creative retooling between heavy, seasons. Heavy creative retooling. It was it was basically at least three or four different shows over the course of its run, of which none were actually good, if memory serves. I will take your word for it. I think I watched the pilot and that was about it. There's a version of Designated Survivor, and I have not yet watched my screeners for this upcoming season, that is a slightly above average political drama starring Kiefer Sutherland that I would watch. It happened to only be the show for maybe five or six episodes of the first two seasons, but it exists. I, I believe in that slightly above average version of Designated Survivor. Well, we look forward to hearing your thoughts on the new season, Dan. And if you have any great ideas, maybe you'll be the sixth showrunner. You heard my great idea. It's Kiefer Sutherland and whatever. Uh, then there was also Lucifer last season. Yes, that... back on track. Lucifer was revived by Netflix. But I mean, it's third season ended with a cliffhanger. And, you know, I, I don't know that that show was something that Netflix took an ownership stake in, unlike Designated Survivor, which for that one, we should clarify, ABC Studios produced Designated Survivor the first couple of seasons. And as soon as it moved to Netflix, ABC Studios washed its hands of it and said, you know what, we're good. And, it, and now Netflix is producing that as its own original. So if, if we really wanted to say it's three seasons, two platforms, two studios, five showrunners. If you want to get really in, into the weeds of it all. If, but if you want to know the math for creative success, that right there is it. <laughs> yeah. And by by that, he means not at all. You know, but with Lucifer, I mean, Netflix already has, has SVOD rights to the CW's DC comic shows. Lucifer is based on another DC property, albeit not one that exists in that same Arrowverse, obviously. But I mean, there's a proven reason, at least on paper, for why Netflix would want to revive that. Plus, you know, when you make fans happy, it's, you know, not even even if it's a, a low investment. Sure. And that is the that has always been the Netflix model. They did it with Longmire also. So they, they, they sort of have this reputation, which they have sort of gone back and forth as to whether they want to embrace it. There were a couple of years where Netflix tried being like, we're not the we're going to save your show streaming platform and then they went and saved another show and we're not your streaming we're not your save the show platform then they saved another one so everyone keeps believing it now we but start it's gotta, but it has to make sense and i mean you know you brought up longmire which is a great point also from warner horizon so the warner brothers has a business model in place with netflix and i don't know that a lot of other outlets necessarily have that so 
Now, when we look just quickly to sort of wrap this up at the shows that we talked about at the beginning as being the ones that are at least saying that they're looking for new homes, whether it's Whiskey Cavalier or Star or AP Bio, do you have any reason to think there are logical alternative homes for any of these or we're just going to have to wait and see? I mean, I think we're going to have to wait and see. I mean, I don't know how easy it's going to be to pick up Star for another season I mean, it's an expensive cast. Lee Daniels attached. That's it means you've got a big producing fee there. Plus all the music. Those those shows are expensive to make. So if anyone's going to kick that tire, I mean, you know, you would think, well, it's owned by 20th Century Fox, which is now a Disney owned studio. So the first thought is, well, maybe it goes to Disney Plus. But then where do you where does it fit in on that platform? Or maybe it goes to Hulu. But does it fit in on that platform? You know, it, I really don't know. I mean, especially in this era where you're looking at at a brand, at these networks and streamers as a brand, and, you know, maybe BET? I I don't know. But it's also a show that exists almost entirely as kind of an offshoot or spinoff or conceptual companion to Empire, which is still on Fox, but for its last season. So, you know, separating those two shows would not seem to do any logical favors for right. Star. <laughs> right. But BET is making a big push in the scripted space. They've got some high profile projects coming up and a couple that they've already renewed from big name producers. The head of that network is really making a big push for, for prominent showrunners in the African-American community to come work for BET. I mean, that wouldn't surprise me if, if that worked out. But it's also Viacom, which could afford to take a swing like this. I don't know. It'll be interesting to follow. When this podcast is over, we will go stand out in the hallway outside of our offices and see if Lee Daniels walks by. Yes, the star writer's room is down the hall. Well, that wraps up that segment. Let's move on to batting third this week. CBS announced that The Good Fight, yes, the CBS all-access spinoff of The Good Wife, will air its first season on the Linear Network starting June 16th. Number three. Dan, it's a rare move that we haven't really seen since Star Trek Discovery premiered on CBS back in September 2017. Which you could understand because that was launching the show. The thing that I keep thinking of and that I don't feel like enough people have been mentioning because it's only somewhat relevant is the strange writer's strike year where CBS randomly aired censored episodes of Dexter for a few months. And it was like, okay, fine. We've got to fill in the space somewhere. Here's a show on a sister network that we're just going to bring over without the swearing and we'll see if it works. And it was a little strange and everyone associated with the show made this big deal about how they really didn't have to actually change all that much of it. That really, it turned out that there was just, you know, they had to trim the violence here and there and one or two of the swear words. It was a strange thing to do, but that was immediately what I thought of. And then the other thing I thought of was, okay, it makes sense because mostly Emmys is the reason it makes sense to me, at least. Do you want to expand on that, Dan? I can happily expand on that. I just think that we've, we've talked about how Game of Thrones was this behemoth that everyone ran away from this spring. Right. Handmaid's Tale got pushed, etc. And so basically what that did was it created a somewhat unexpected vacuum where the drama category for the Emmys this year is weak as hell. And it's weak as hell with certain room for shows to sneak in. And I feel like The Good Fight is a show that is a very high quality. It really is. And isn't in the conversation all that much. And this is a good way to get it in the conversation with the strange caveat that they're starting with the first season, which is not as good 
It's really more of a, okay, let's find a new premise as we move away from The Good Wife. But from CBS's point of view, it gets The Good Fight into a general conversation. It puts it in front of many, many million more viewers. And from there, you assume people maybe go, okay, oh, right, Christine Baranski's awesome. We should give her a nomination, which she certainly is worthy of. Maybe we'll watch more of it later. But also, I think there's a lot of the CBS audience, the CBS core audience that has no idea that CBS All Access exists at all, that has no idea that there's a Good Wife spinoff that exists at all. CBS could practically just put a colon after The Good Wife, call it The Good Wife colon The Good Fight, and people would be like, oh my God, my, finally, The Good Wife is back. I think they could do that and get solid ratings with it. Yeah, and and you know, from a, a programming standpoint, I mean, it makes a lot of sense for CBS for their summer lineup. So it's it's a move that, you know, gives CBS some good quality scripted programming in, in the little watched months. Last summer, if you recall, CBS aired a drama called Salvation, canceled after two seasons. This I'm summer- I'm trying to think if I do recall that. Unlike, unlike Resurrection, which I vividly remember, and Resurrection and Salvation sound like they should be two parts of the same literary series uh, that I probably would not want to read. Anyway, continue. Salvation. I vaguely remember that existed, but yeah, definitely didn't watch it. And, you know, so look, look, this summer, CBS is going to have The Good Fight, the final season of Elementary, season two of Alan Cumming drama Instinct, and a new series called Blood and Treasure. And I mean, this is the latest example of what you're seeing of broadcast networks really pushing to go year round scripted originals. And by scripted originals, I mean ones that they produce, not these like cheap Canadian imports that the CW had become known for. And even look, CW is doing the same thing. They're they're holding holding back some of the some of these originals. A lot of them are running into the summer, and then they air some of the, these the, the game shows like Penn and Teller, and then that takes you back into October. And I mean, this is the future. And if you know airing something that you've already got in in the can and you're giving it a good exposure, it's gonna have some Emmy ramifications if, if all goes according to plan. And then in a larger sense, you could wind up getting some of these, some of this big core audience on CBS to watch the good fight on all access and, and subscribe to that platform. And you know, as Rick Porter pointed out in his story about, about the big move, all access and Showtime combined have a total of 8 million subscribers and they don't differentiate which service gets which number. So that's a very small audience. And when you're looking at CBS, that's in 100 million households. So the opportunity is there to both boost the good fight and CBS All Access. It makes sense. I would be very curious to watch those episodes and see what percentage of the ads are house ads for Twilight Zone, for the second season of Strange Angel, for basically the existence Twilight of Zone. Yeah, Twilight Zone, all these, the, the, they've got the stand coming up. They've got a, a lot of interesting programming on CBS All Access, but I don't know that the core CBS viewer knows about any of it. Yeah, I, I, if, I, if I had to guess, I would guess that there will be a lot of ads telling people that CBS All Access is a thing that exists. I, I'll be curious to see if it feels as if it was butchered in any particular way for CBS. I think that especially... The first season, it felt like they were trying really hard to throw in swearing and to throw in gratuitous nudity that didn't work. I feel as if the gratuitous nudity could all be trimmed instantly. Some of the swearing the show actually took pleasure in, and I feel like the rhythms of the dialogue were based around letting Christine Baranski swear. And you will lose some of that when the show has attempted to do nudity and sex and stuff. It's 
been pretty flimsy, I think, and so I don't think you'll lose anything there. But maybe bleeping swearings will swearing will add something to it, like like the Jay Moore classic comedy action where they bleeped the swearing and it was actually funnier for it. I mean, the Goldbergs bleeps the swearing. Brooklyn Nine Nine has started doing that on NBC now. Look, I mean, and you know, just to go back and touch on one last last point before we wrap up the segment, you know, the Kings have a new show coming out. In case we we haven't talked about that enough here on top five, but they have this drama called Evil coming up next season. I would imagine since they put out that promo before anything else this past month, that you'll see a fairly amount of promotion, heavy promotion for that. The Kings are one of the studio's biggest overall deals. They've got an, another project in the works over at Showtime. And, you know, look, maybe this is a, throwing them a bone after they just had that big censorship issue on season four of The Good Fight. Yeah, several people suggested that to me on Twitter. And when you and when you sort of put it all together as a this is something that obviously is no skin off of CBS is back. It's it's nothing. This is a breeze for them. So it's it's throwing a bone in the lowest pressure way possible that could also benefit CBS. So you can you can see why I. The only thing I wonder is if this at some point begins to feel to some subscribers of All Access like a surrender on All Access. Like, okay, fine, why am I bothering? Why am I subscribing to something if it's going to be on CBS anyway? Does that mean that the subscri- that the service I'm subscribing to is failing? I don't think CBS would look at it that way. I would. I strongly disagree with that. I mean, when you look at the the resources that they're pumping into some of these originals, they've got another star. You know, a couple of different Star Trek shows coming out, a Stephen King show. I mean, there's a lot of high profile stuff and and more in the works. I mean. This is a a platform that they want to succeed. And I think there's enough positives to airing season one on the linear network. I mean, if this was season four, then I think you maybe have an argument. But maybe this becomes an annual, like every summer you get the new season of of The Good Fight. I mean, that's not a horrible idea. It's just such a topical show that being two seasons behind on the political moves and wheeling and dealing it, it takes away some of its appeal. The first season was very much about Diane Lockhart basically reeling from the election of 2016, and then it sort of locked in in seasons two and three. So I, I feel like to some degree CBS should be saying, if you like season one of The Good Fight that you're watching now, it actually gets better if you pay money for it. So. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you'll, there'll be some uh, critic quotes in uh, some of those ads for All Access, I would imagine. But look, you know, from a financial standpoint, what would you rather do? Spend a couple million bucks on a low-budget summer original or air something you've already got that makes your some of your most important producers very happy? You can't be free. Can't be free. Well, that takes us to our fourth segment of the week. Speaking of June launches, The Good Fight joins an extremely crowded month of TV premieres, which is what we were alluding to, Dan, in our opening segment. Number four. New and returning shows launching in June include, and you'll forgive me if I rattle off because this is a very long list, The Handmaid's Tale, Pose, Luther, Perpetual Grace LTD, Tales of the City, Big Little Lies, Queen Sugar, Younger, Baskets, Too Old to Die Young, The Final Season of Jessica Jones, Los Espookies with Fred Armisen, City on a Hill, Euphoria, Alternado with Arturo Castro, Yellowstone, Years and Years on HBO with Emma Thompson, The Final Season of Legion, The Rook, Fox's Batshit What Just Happened, plus The Weekly on FX. I mean, and that's just a, a handful that makes me very exhausted as a TV critic, just hearing you list all of those things. And yeah, as you'll discover when we get to our final segment today, 
there's a ridiculous amount of stuff that's hitting in June. And I don't know that I felt like May was light on TV because as we joke each week, there's an endless amount of stuff. And there were great shows that premiered in May, including a couple that are premiering on Friday as sort of the last gasp before the Emmy window. But yeah, June is a crazy month and summer TV always used to be this, okay, relax. You know, if you haven't seen it before, it's new to you. We're airing repeats kind of thing. And we've definitely moved well beyond that. But my goodness, if you look at the cable and streaming services, it's basically like summer movies only on the television. Yeah. And I mean, we know a couple of these shows, namely Handmaid's Tale, were pushed back to avoid Game of Thrones. But none of these seasons are going to be eligible for the 2019 Emmys as the window closes, what, June 1st? The window closes on on May 31st. That's the end. June 1st then starts the next year. There's the sort of alternative theory, and we broached it with uh, Good Fight in the last segment, which is the just keep things in people's minds theory you know the if it doesn't matter what people what season people think they're voting for for a show as long as you put something in front of them and say here remember this was a great show they'll just vote for it on a kind of reflex which hasn't always worked like something like i use orange is the new black as an example of this because that's a show that premiered in the summer and has consistently aired in the summer and its final season will be airing later this summer and as a result It's always been a year behind in the Emmy cycle. And so I think, for example, it was the third or fourth season of that show that was terrific. And it was the one that was up for Emmy consideration as people were being disappointed by the following season. And I think there was at least one season of Orange is the New Black that was hurt because the season that came after it actually didn't remind people of how good the previous season was. It took away some of the luster. And so I think that hypothetically that could happen with Pose. I wouldn't expect it to. But on the other hand, Ryan Murphy shows in the past have gone off the rails once or twice in later seasons. I I would be surprised if that happened with Pose, but I wouldn't be shocked. So that would be an example of a show where the first season is going to be the one that's going to be up for Emmy consideration. And if Billy Porter is not nominated, that to me would be... I will will flip a table. I I would be angry and disappointed is all I'm going to say. So either airing the second season of Pose when they are will remind everyone, oh, my gosh, Billy Porter was fantastic in that first season of Pose. Let's give him awards. But if it goes bad and for some reason the focus is off, it could hurt. I would not expect it to hurt. I would not expect I would not expect season two to be bad. But at the same time, Pose season one did air last June. June was, of course, LGBTQ Pride Month. It makes total sense to air Pose in, in that month every year. But, you know, from a historical point of view, I mean, I went and looked up some of the shows that premiered last June and a lot of them are the same. So Pose Succession, which is back later this year, Younger, which is back the same month, Legion, The Affair, Yellowstone, Queen of the South, Luke Cage, and Glow. So, I mean, you know, is every June as, as crazy as this June? The answer is no. I mean, especially when you go back a year before that, and Big Little Lies originally aired in February 2017, but HBO now moved that to June, where it's now positioning Big Little Lies to go for best drama at the Emmys 2020. Do I have that right? I mean, it's getting hard to follow. Yeah, it's, it's way off in the future. Our, our colleague uh, Tim Goodman was already talking on Twitter yesterday about how Perpetual Grace Limited should have been Kingsley in the Emmy conversation. But it's like, but wait, no, no, no. We have to have this year's Emmy conversation because Ben Kingsley is not in this year's Emmy conversation. He's in next year's. And so you mentioned Glow, which 
premiered two years ago in June and then last year's second episode. So it's actually doing the exact same thing as Orange is the New Black did, which is also what Genji Cohen's new show, American Princess, is doing. So maybe she just likes having shows that premiere in June and are a year behind in the awards cycle. But it, it becomes a very confusing thing because we, like everybody else in the media, we're in the process of half talking about the things that are coming, but also half doing various awards previews and and trying to figure out, you know, what the big contenders are. And TCA award balloting starts next week, as I may have mentioned, Jesus and Mero are our hosts. Uh, so you're living in sort of two or three different time periods at once, and it becomes very confusing. This and is, this is the time of year where I'm grateful that I cover breaking news and not award season stuff because it, there's I already feel overwhelmed by how much content there is. I can't imagine going back and to try and put the award spotlight on stuff that we've already covered, whether it be online Q&As or postmortems and things like that. And just looking at the season and going, where do I even begin? Well, I begin with my DVR, where my DVR piles up during the year. It gets to the point where it's at like 95% full. And all I'm doing is week to week triage of making sure it doesn't go over. And then it's like, okay, great. Now I get to the summer and I can finally watch the 30 backed up episodes of Arrow that I have until I eventually just surrender and stop watching Arrow. But there, there really did used to be a time at which suddenly my DVR was recording nothing yeah. on a given night because it was summer and I could finally catch up and watch whatever. And now, I don't know, eventually I have to finish the third season of Mr. Robot before the fourth and final season premieres, don't I? Yeah, I would think. <laughs> I mean, that's a, a pretty big critical show, especially now that you have an Oscar winner. I, I don't know. I don't know what to say, but my DVR makes me sad and scared. And then my screener accounts make me sad and scared. And so June is going to be a big month for us well as always that takes us to our fifth and final segment we wrap things up with our weekly critics corner number five this week's new arrivals in case we didn't mention there's a lot of tv here's what we got this weekend good omens on amazon when they see us on netflix dc universe's swamp thing hbo's deadwood movie perpetual grace on epics fear the walking dead returns on amc american princess on lifetime this little show called The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, Freeform's Grownish, USA Network's Queen of the South. Those are just to name a few. Dan, I, I don't even know how you do it. What do you got? Well, I mean, part of the answer is it helps to have multiple critics, which is why it's so great that we do. But it also means that it's harder for me to actually get to the shows that my colleagues are reviewing. So I've watched one episode apiece of Good Omens and whatever the thing is on Epics, Perpetual Grace Limited. It had a different name that also wasn't a good name before that. And I think they're both interesting shows. They're both shows with very quirky, particular voices, and they're both shows that Tim Goodman has really loved. And I don't know when I'm going to get to watch more than one episode of them. So if you like distinctive voiced shows, those two exist. I think that the big, clear big things this week are premiering both on Friday that would be the 31st and you have when they see us on netflix which is ava duvernay's central park five four-part miniseries that is not called central park five because she doesn't want to use the media assigned pejorative to the five young men who were accused and ultimately had their convictions vacated of a brutal rape in central park and it is part legal drama part chronology of an injustice but also just part attempting to humanize these five young men who were made into a categorization by the media, by Donald Trump at that time, etc. It is powerful. It is wonderfully acted. I'm going to be curious to see how it plays in the awards 
season because obviously that is why it is premiering when it is premiering it's it's a big ensemble and a lot of the biggest parts are kind of small parts so John Leguizamo, Joshua Jackson, um, Nisi Nash, etc. They're all giving good performances. They're all just really very brief performances. Felicity Huffman, I think they probably had a good chance to get an Emmy nomination for her. That that probably isn't happening. I think Jarell Jerome is ultimately kind of the breakout star of it. People who might remember him from Moonlight. Anyone who saw Mr. Mercedes might remember him from that. He's fantastic. It's really good. People should check that out. You know if you're in the target audience for the Deadwood movie. You know, you're not going to suddenly be like, ooh, a Deadwood movie, what's it about? No, it's the conclusion for Deadwood that you never got because it was the rare show that HBO canceled abruptly and without an ending. This is its ending. This is its ending that David Milch wanted to give it. It has a an emotional richness that it might not have had otherwise because of his Alzheimer's diagnosis that's been in the media lately. It's powerful. I don't think it's necessarily a great episode or two episodes of Deadwood, but I think it is just satisfying in the way that it's supposed to be and the way that it needs to be and the way that fans felt they were missing. So those would be two big things. Handmaid's Tale, I wish I could be more positive on it. I've seen six episodes of the new season and it's just exhausting and it's exhausting without enough good new elements to make me want to recommend this. But yeah, a lot of, lot of TV. A lot wow. of TV. <laughs> well, that's it for us this week. We will be back next week live from the ATX TV Festival in Austin. And until then, Dan, I think, you know, maybe send us some questions via TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That would be terrific. If you are a fan of the podcast, you can also download us on all of your different podcasting platforms. Subscribe if you really like us, rate us, review us, etc. And if you happen to be in Austin next Thursday at 4 o'clock, we will be in the SFA intercontinental ballroom talking about television you should join us we will have a microphone going around so any questions you have for us including the number of showrunners that designated survivor has had we will be there to answer five. them it's five Let's, uh, don't shut down a line of questioning leslie we will also have some be joined by some surprise guests we're hoping to do a segment with uh, at least a couple of executives and uh, the planning remains underway it's gonna be fun it will be. So until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.